So this study titled Unseen Realm, Seeing the Bible Through Both Realms, is in fact based on the book by Michael Heiser called Unseen Realm. Now, Unseen Realm is a book he wrote, took him 15 years, and he said, and I can greatly empathize with this, he says, I don't know anything. I just put everybody else's words together, and that's my book. So he cites a whole lot of things in Unseen Realm. Unseen Realm has almost as many footnotes, I think, as the entire book is. And I actually found this through, I believe it was cited by Jack Hibbs. If you don't want all the citations, but you still want all the information, you want to check out Supernatural. It's the exact same book without the citations. So today, I think you're going to have to make a choice. And that choice is we're going to have to follow tradition, or we're going to have to follow the Bible, but we can't probably do both. And we have to follow the Bible in its original language. It wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, and Koinonia Greek. And that, the original language, is going to open up a whole lot of things to us that we may be missing in the English. The other thing that's going to change how we view our Bible is this mentality when we read it. Yes, the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't given to us. You see, looking through the eyes of the people who wrote it really makes things come clear like never before. Paul and Peter and James and John, Isaiah, Ezekiel, none of them could understand our life today. Those of us in the United States, if you aren't homeless, you live better than King Solomon. Air conditioning, heating, shelter, readiness to food, clean water, I mean, electricity, natural gas, you name it. We are blessed far and above. And he would look at us as if we were those Marvel superheroes that we see in the movies, because we are living ways they couldn't comprehend. So God gave them the Bible because we can relate to them far better than they can relate to us. So remember to look through their eyes. Now there's going to be times in this message, because I sure had them reading the book, where you're going to start to think that I'm off track. And I'm at a point where you're going to turn this off, or if you could, cast virtual stones at me. However, it's going to all come together. At least that's how it was for me in learning this, and I ask that you at least hang in there with me. Now, nothing here is complex in and of itself. However, there are a lot of layers. And as we layer this, that's where the complexity really comes in. So you can't really jump to the bottom. It's kind of like digging a hole. If we start at level ground and we dig down a little bit and go down step by step, when we get to that bedrock bottom, we can walk right out and we're not hurt. But if we jump off that ledge and hit the bottom, that's going to hurt. So that's where we're going to start. Somewhere, if you're a Christian, that we really have some common ground. And that is, God made the heavens and the earth, and he made the heavenly host in the heavens to rule with him in the heavens. They are spirits. They don't have bodies like us. God also made man to rule the earth with him. And he entrusted us with its care in the Garden of Eden. Another thing, the term Elohim, which is Hebrew, is translated God. But God is a title. It is not a name. 
God's name is not God. That's very important. Kind of like if you spoke to me and said, I talked to a police officer today. Yes, I would know the power and the authority that you spoke to. But I wouldn't have a chance of knowing which one you were talking to. So if you said Officer Clark of the Canton, Ohio Police Department, gotcha. I'm on track with you. I know who you're talking to. Most of the time, God is our God. But it's also translated with God with a little g. Or God's plural with an S. And this is generally speaking about the other heavenly beings in the spiritual realm and not God. But this also includes anyone who's died. And that's kind of a shocker there. They are disembodied spirits. So they are also Elohim. In fact, when Saul conjures up Samuel before his final battle, it says that the spirit of Samuel appeared. But in the actual Hebrew, it says the Elohim of Samuel appeared. So just keep that in mind. Now, there are tiers of the heavenly host, archangel and angel, much like ranks within the military or police departments. And then there's also types, seraphim, cherubim, and so on. So what is God's name? God's name is actually Yahweh. Actually, it's Yah, but Yahweh is how it's most always, almost always written when you see LORD in all caps in your Bible. And so, let's get started. Our first scripture we're going to is Psalm 68.4. And here it says, Sing to God, sing praises to His name. Extol Him who rides on the clouds by His name Yah, and rejoice before Him. Yahweh is an Elohim. No other Elohim is Yahweh. Yahweh has traits that are specific and unique to Him and Him alone. One of those is omnipotence, meaning he is all-powerful. Another one, omniscience, meaning he's all-knowing. And the thing about that is he is all-knowing across all time at the same time. And we can't even comprehend that. Now, third one, omnipresent. It means he's everywhere always and always everywhere. Almost just as hard to wrap your head around. Now that we've leveled the ground, let's start dating. This is where it starts to get a little uneasy, because we've never looked at the Bible this way. Most of us. And we're going to do that starting in Psalm 82. Let's see what it says. God has taken His place, capital G, in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. Notice the caps and non-caps. Now Yah is going to talk to a corrupt council of Elohim. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? They're favoring the wicked. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Here's where he ties it up. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. 
That's pretty clear. This is not a man. It can't be a man. Since they die like a man, sons of the Most High, yes, we are also sons of God, but not in a spiritual realm. We have earthly bodies. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Capital God means he's the judge. He's the CEO, the head of the council. And actually, now we know the head of the council is also Jesus. So, what is this telling us? It's telling us that there are divine or heavenly beings that sit on a divine council with God or Jesus. Now, did God or Jesus need their help? Nope. But he wants it. He wants their help like he wanted our help in the garden while here on earth. But they are a corrupt council because they have free will just like us. God as CEO issues orders and leaves it up to the council to carry them out. Just as he gave us orders on how to care for the earth and how to spread out and multiply, these council members can still choose to rebel just like us. I hope you're good with this. Because here's where we enter the rabbit hole. We have the rebellions. And there's three of them. The first one is the fall of man. And this one happened in the Garden of Eden. Led by the spiritual side, we call the serpent. Now, I dare tell you, this was not a walking snake. When we put it all together, it appears that the divine council met in the Garden of Eden. And we know that this serpent came around. And if we look at a serpent and we add legs and we give it the ability to fly and you say, well, where did you get that ability to fly? Well, we know that Lucifer, before he fell, was called the covering cherub. There were cherubs on all four sides of the throne of God. He was the only thing physically above the throne of God. So he flew. And we also see wings on them in other places of the Bible. And if you take the wings and you take the legs away, what do you have? You have a snake. And through a lot of cultures in antiquity, we see that dragons are seen as throne guardians. Well, that fits here because Lucifer was a cherub, covering angel of the throne of God. Now, he doesn't need guarded, but that's how we would see it. So I ask you, did this covering throne guardian walk up to Eve? And if, if Eve is in the garden where these, this council meets and these guardians or these council members, now not all of them are covering cherubs, keep that in mind, there are ranks again, but she's probably seen them, probably met them. Remember, we have to take the Bible and put it into our lives. We need to see it but also know that these are people just like us. It even says that. These are people just like us. They're no different. Now, Eve and Adam at this point, they are different than us. They are not under the curse. They have not fallen. They are perfect and will not die. They still have free will. And we still retain a lot of that thinking pattern, if you will, and temptation. There's nothing saying they couldn't be tempted. So now we see this familiar, high-ranking council member walk up to her and he makes the temptation, hath God truly said. Now, while Eve is still at fault, I'm not 
I'm not trying to say she wasn't. As we know, she knew the rules. It's actually recorded that she reads them back. But it makes it more real to see how, even in her perfect state, she was deceived because she may have even known or had a relationship, or at least a familiarity, with this serpent. So now, we also have to keep in mind that God is playing the long game. He only has plan A. Remember, he's all-knowing. He doesn't need plan B. But the enemies of God, they do not know the plan, but they are trying to stop it. And we need to go back to Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. And there we're going to see something that maybe we've missed. It says, this is the NIV. I like the NIV in the Old Testament. I don't really care for it as much in the New Testament. In fact, I don't use it in the New Testament, but that's just me. If you like the NIV, have at it. It does show this verse in a way that the other versions don't, and I think it is actually more accurate here at the end in, the, in its translation. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. So God is taking this throne guardian who was above the throne of God, saw himself as higher than anything else, and telling him he is lower than the cattle. If you're flying above something, you see it from the top. Essentially, he is now saying you will look at it from the bottom. I hope you see the, the symbolism here. Continues, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. Well, there's another part. We read it. We know the words are there. We've read it probably several times, but we miss it. Whose offspring? Your? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the serpent. Between your offspring and hers. As far as we know, these divine beings in their spiritual abode do not procreate. In fact, there's nothing that tells us they do. But offspring, where are we going to get that? And we're going to get to that. But hold on to that, because some of them say seed, between your seed and hers. Well, the woman doesn't have seed. The man has seed. And that's going to be even more interesting when we really break down your seed and hers. We know that Jesus comes from the seed of God. Mary is the mother, no worldly father. Then he gets to the prophecy here. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now let's fast forward to the Last Supper, where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. First off, the washing wasn't the thing that threw them for the loop. I would ask you to watch Amir Sarfati on the Behold Israel's channel, his breakdown of the Last Supper. It is absolutely amazing. And he says they would have expected him to wash something, but it wasn't their feet. It was their hands. But Jesus says his betrayer will lift his heel against him. Hmm. Elsewhere in the Bible, Psalm 41 7 through 9. I don't have the slide for this one, so if you have to, look it up, pause it, look it up, or just listen. Here we go. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me, they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. 
even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Heel. Going back to that first, first ever prophecy in the entire Bible. Last Supper, John 13, 7 through 19. Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, had taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you not know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. So I hope you've hung with me so far, because here's where we're going to start tying things together and connecting dots. This is all connected. But to connect the dots, you must have a multi-dimensional or multi-realm view. You have to keep them both in view at the same time. And that's something we, as the church, are really not good at anymore. But by bringing the other dimension, the spiritual dimension, fully into view, we are going to connect our Bibles like never before. You see, the Son of God left His place to come to earth to save us. But He's not the only one who left. Genesis 6, 1-4. through 4. The sons of God left their rightful place. And this is what we're going to look at. Remember the seed? Your seed, her seed, between your offspring and hers. Here's where we find that. That's in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. That's where we're at. ESV version for you, for those of you who are following along. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now come into? That's Bible language for sex. Several places. And also, when they bore them children, you can't argue that that's what happened. We also know that they take on bodily form. Look at Lot, Abraham, when the three 
even before they went to save Lot, the same angels there. So they can take on human flesh, and apparently they can procreate, and this is where they came from. Now, Genesis 6 takes us through the flood. The flood story doesn't end till chapter 9. But one of the things it tells us is that Noah was selected. And one of the things it points out is he is perfect in his generations. This means that Noah doesn't have any GN or DNA of Nephilim. No rogue genes. He's all mankind as he was originally supposed to be. That's the second rebellion. So the first rebellion, the garden. The second rebellion, those angels. Again, angel is a title. Angel just means they're telling us what they're doing. They're messengers. We know that the angels are called princes. They're called archangels. They're called angels. Those are ranks and mission-specific titles. Now we come to the third and final rebellion. And that brings us to Genesis 11. So this takes us to the Tower of Babel. Very famous. It's a Bible event that we hear a lot about, and I use Bible event on purpose. Because when we use word story, Bible story, it gives the account or the impression to those that it didn't actually happen. It's just something we say to get a message across or a nice allegory or something. No, these things happened. And history continuously and repeatedly shows your Bible is far more relevant, far more accurate than your newspaper will ever or has ever been. And Babel, it's actually two Hebrew words, Bab meaning gateway and El meaning God, was the gateway to God. And in fact, you can trace all of your Greek and Roman gods back to this tower and back to Nimrod, who actually was the first man-made Nephilim. On the slide here, I put a ziggurat. A ziggurat is a special constructed temple or building here. And the purpose is to call the heavenly beings down to them. God says, I will not be called down by you. I don't answer to you. You answer to me. And that's how it should be. Who are we to call God or tell him where to go and when to go there? But in Genesis 11, verses 8 and 9, we see what happened. And the reason. Babel happened, if if we look, is essentially Nimrod becoming a man-made Nephilim and an archer intended to build this tower up to heaven so that he could ascend and shoot God from his throne. He is the prototype, or a prototype, of the Antichrist, the first prototype. And there are prototypes in almost every generation. Antiochus Epiphanes, Hitler. Let's look through time. These people show up all the time. They are prototypes, waymakers, if you will. Anyway, I digress. Genesis 11, 8 and 9. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Now, no one has a problem with that, but very few churches are teaching you where a little later in our Bible, that also comes up with more detail. And when you connect the two, 
This is where the first real connection pop, mind shift of tradition, things you were left out, really comes to light. And that's Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. And it says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Now, this is the ESV. If you're looking at your new King James, you're going to see sons of or uh, Israel there, where sons of God are. It's not a contradiction. We take some liberties when we read the Bible because we know what's going on, and we, we place those preconceived things, and we miss things in the time. Jacob is the son whose name will be changed to Israel after he wrestles with God at night. Jacob's name means heel, or he grasps the heel, and he also means he cheats or he supplants, which if you know the story of him and Esau, it fits. But Deuteronomy 32, when God divided the nations, when he divided mankind, nations, nations are people groups, ethnicities, families at this point. Jacob doesn't exist. This, this is Genesis 11. Keep that in mind here for a minute. When his name is changed to Israel, Israel means to struggle with God or struggle. That's also interesting because for your Bibles here who say Israel, Israel doesn't exist yet. God now has essentially given to this divine council, the members, all the land and all the peoples on the earth. And he says, but I get to keep one. I can make my own anytime I want. And it appears, not that they had a choice, but they say, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll take everybody and all the land, and if you want to start a nation, have at it. And that's where we go. Now, they didn't want to be God's people. No one at Babel wanted to be their people, be his people. How do we know that? Because they all disobeyed. And because of the dis disobeying, God gave them two lesser Elohim. And you might be saying, well, I think you're taking a stretch on that one. Well, Genesis 9, right after the flood, God told them to spread out, multiply, and have dominion over the earth, or spread out over the entire earth and multiply. Just like he told us before at the garden, after they uh, are given dominion. But people didn't. It says that they all gathered in one city, Babel. And this is when God, in short, tells them, you don't want to serve me? You don't want to listen to what I'm telling you? Then fine. I'll give you to them. That's the other divine council members. And he's got to be thinking, well, he knows everything, so he doesn't have to be thinking. He knows what we're going to do. But I would be thinking, if I give you the choice between the heavenly host or the one true God, Man would have to absolutely choose the one true God, right? I mean, if I offered you a little tricycle or a sports car, you're going to choose the sports car. But we don't. Because as Paul says, when you are children, I, I wish to feed you with meat, but I must give you milk because you are babes in the, in the faith. We are like children in the faith, and we always choose the tricycle. Why? Because I can ride a tricycle right now. I don't have to learn 
drive a car. I don't have to learn what the buttons do. I just get on. It's balanced. It's it's pedal, and I turn this wheel, and it takes me about 30 seconds to learn how to ride this thing. That sports car is a whole different ballgame. You have to look down the road. You have to have an eternal perspective to choose the one true God and not the quote-unquote God of this earth who will give you whatever you want here just so you don't choose the one true God, which is the entire purpose of him setting these nations apart so that they could choose him and come back. The sons of God or the Elohim were assigned all the peoples, but now that you have nations and peoples, you really can start getting into the wars. And so when gods, if you will, the Elohim are fighting, it's these spiritual princes that are fighting. And they all hate Israel because they are the people or the nation God kept for himself. We are told in Genesis 10, the known as the Table of Nations, that there are 70 nations at that point. And we get nations basically because there are 70 families who all become the nations of the earth. But there's one nation that is shockingly missing, and its name is Israel. Again, this is crazy. We, we take this for granted because we know where the Bible is going with this. But this is Genesis 11. Abram isn't selected by God until Genesis 12. The promise of Isaac, it doesn't come until Genesis 18, and his birth isn't until Genesis 21. Jacob, who will become Israel, isn't even conceived until Genesis 24. Now, God tells the council that he will take a nation that doesn't exist and has no people and no land, and at that point, every living person is disqualified from making it to heaven because they are sinful and they're not trusting God. This is extremely important. This is where all of the, the dots are going to start to come from, really. Because God scatters them from Babel, which will be the area of Babylon, which is in Mesopotamia. He then calls Abram, whose name will be changed to Abraham, out of Ur of the Chaldeans, which makes him a Mesopotamian. Yahweh gives Abram, whose name means father is exalted, a pagan dude who he calls out of these pagan Mesopotamian families and gives him the new name Abraham, father of a multitude, after he proves himself through faith in God. That's all he's ever wanted, is us to trust him. And it is in that trust in God that he declares him a new nation, and the Jewish lineage begins. Abraham was not born a Jew. He was born Chaldean. I'm going to come off my lesson here for a little bit and see how the circles work. So we have a Mesopotamian Canaanite named Abraham, or Abram, who becomes Abraham and becomes the Jews. Later on, Moses really becomes, the nation gets kicked off and J, uh, Joshua leads them to the promised land and they really become the nation, the nation of God. They actually have land and such. And they trust God, and they are the people of God. And even in that, Rahab is said to be a Canaanite. And in Deuteronomy, it literally says you can't save them. Kill them all. We know in Joshua 9 that the Gibbonites, the treaty made between Joshua and the Gibbonites, he scolded for. But back in Joshua 6, I believe, in the fall of Jericho, Rahab's saved. And she's actually listed in Hebrews 11 under the table 
of the heroes of faith because she gave a declaration of faith. She had faith in the one true God in her statement. And if you go in and you do a study of it, you break it down, you will see she wrote off Ashtaroth and Molech and all of the gods of the pagans and chose Yahweh as the one true God. Specifically, unequivocally, unequivocally, she makes that statement of faith and asks people of God who she knows he's given the land to, to save her. And she's saved. It's that statement of faith. She becomes a Jew, just as Abraham did. It's not where you're born. Abraham wasn't born a Jew. So when they don't listen, and Nebuchadnezzar comes down and he conquers Israel, it says that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is a Canaanite. When these people chose, the Jews chose not to follow the one true God, who they were set apart to show people the way to him through faith. That's it. Way through faith. Just like it is today. Nothing has changed. He takes them and he sends them off. He says, you don't want to be my people? I made you my people through the choice of Abraham. You don't want to be my people? Go back to your people. See how they treat you. And then he again calls them out as his people. He didn't send them to a random nation. He sent them back to the nation they came out of. Just like this is happening here. We're back to this where we have the, the table of 70 nations. We're missing the nation of Israel in the table of 70 nations. So once Abraham becomes the nation of God, we now have 71 nations. So hold on to that. Again, from the beginning, the Bible is for us, but it wasn't given to us. It was given to the people of that time. It's our job to look through their eyes to see how things line up. Keeping that in mind. So the land of the nations is where that Elohim rules. This is why God took land from other nations. Because each god would rule over the land they held. And in that land, you could worship them. And they ruled. Let's take a look at 2 Kings 5, 15 through 18. Naaman is a Syrian general who has leprosy. And he has a Jewish slave girl. The slave girl tells Naaman, if you only could go to the prophet of God, prophet of Yahweh in Israel, he could heal you of your leprosy. And he gets a letter from the king of, of Syria. And he goes to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel thinks he's being set up. But he ends up going... He has a little bit of a faith issue, but he ends up going and doing what, he, what he's told, and he's cleansed of his leprosy. And he's returned to the prophet of God, and he's trying to pay him. And that, that's where 2 Kings 5, 15 through 18 kicks up. So let's take a look at it. And he, Naaman, returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him. And he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he, the prophet of God, said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, Then, if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods but to the Lord, but to Yahweh. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Ramon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Ramon, when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, 
May the Lord, may Yahweh pardon your servant in this thing. For the longest time I had that part, two mule loads of earth highlighted. I couldn't figure it out. What? You're healed. You're trying to pay the man who doesn't want it. And you're trying to take two mule loads of dirt back home. I, I don't get it. But Michael Heiser calls it cosmic geography. And that is Naaman, by taking this dirt, is able to go back to Syria and lay the dirt out. And that dirt belonging to Yahweh, when he stands on that land, he then has the right to worship that God of that land, which is Yahweh. He has the right to worship. So in 1 Samuel 26, verses 17 and 19, we see David, who's on the run from Saul, and he see that they have this conversation. Then Saul knew David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? Now, therefore, please let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it's the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. David didn't believe he could faithfully worship outside the land of Israel in the land of another god because he didn't have the geography he needed to do all the things he had to do. He didn't have the temple. He didn't have the priests. He didn't have a lot of the stuff that he felt he needed to do that. Then there's the battle or the war in the spiritual realm. And we see that in Daniel 10, verses 12 and 13. And I've highlighted some of the important things so they stand out to you. This is the NKJ. Then he, the angel, said to me, that's Daniel, Do not fear, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, this is the council member or a council member or an Elohim of the kingdom of Persia, Persia, modern-day Iran, withstood me twenty-one days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes. So now we know Michael. Michael's pretty high up, archangel, chief prince, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the king of Persia. The story's wrapped up a few, chap or a few verses later in 20 and 21. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Persia will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. That's how we know Michael is the angel on God's side, the good side of the council, assigned to protect Israel. Remember, looking through their eyes, how did they see this playing out? And we have to go to Deuteronomy 4, 19 and 20 see how they saw this. And take heed lest you lift, this is Moses, and take heed lest you, lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them. 
which the Lord your God has given to all peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. But the Lord, but Yahweh, has taken you and brought you out from the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people, an inheritance, as you are this day. This is the inheritance. So Paul also believed this. And Paul likewise shared this belief, as we see in Acts 17, 26 and 27. NLT version. For from one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from anyone, any one of us. There was never a time any of the other nations could not go to God. God wants to make the people find the sports car, to find him. Why serve a God that serves a greater God? Why not just serve the one true God? When they didn't accept Jesus as Messiah, the church was created with the intent purpose of bringing the Jews back to God through jealousy. The wild olive branch was grafted in. Further stating, Galatians 3, 28 and 29. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Now, some have taken this and created a demonic theology called replacement theology, which basically says that God is done with Israel and the church has taken over all of those. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Completely wrong. Not a shed of truth. Nothing. Once you get this, you'll see why that absolutely could not be the case. But remember, Yahweh's plan is hidden from the other Elohim. Remember, plan A. He only has one plan. He's all-knowing. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8, if you don't believe me, it's hidden. Yet when I am among mature believers, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world, i.e. the lesser council members who are soon forgotten. No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God, his plan that was previously hidden even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began, but the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. Further explained in 1 Peter 1, 9 through 12. I'm using the amplified version. I think it really drives it home. At the same time, you receive the result, the outcome, the consummation of your faith, the salvation of your souls, the prophets who prophesied of the grace, the divine blessing, which was intended for you, searched and inquired earnestly about this salvation. They sought to find out to whom or when this was to come, which the Spirit of Christ working within them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow them. It was then disclosed to them that the services they were rendering were not meant for themselves and their period of time, but for you. In these very things, which have now already been made known plainly to you by those who preach the good news, the gospel, who you, by the same Holy Spirit sent from heaven, into these things very angels long to look. They can't figure it out. It's, it's veiled to them. They couldn't put two and two together. Remember that table of 70 nations? 
Hold on to it. Remember, Genesis 10, if you want to look it back up. Table of Nations. Now let's look at, look at Luke 10, 1 through 12. Important. We're going to start tying things together here. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. Why 70? Table of Nations. And he sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no, no one along the road. That doesn't seem very Christian. Don't talk to anybody on the road. He's saying they aren't our nation. Stay on mission. We have a purpose here. But whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give you. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Basically, you're setting up a headquarters. Whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And heal the sick there, and say to them, The kingdom. The kingdom is an area or district ruled by a king. The kingdom of God. The word there used means this is the highest God. This is Yahweh. So the kingdom of Yahweh has come near to you. But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Never made any sense. Seemed like a lot of stuff going on there. Basically, he's going in and he's setting up a headquarters. And he's saying, you want to worship me? Basically, this will be my center of operations for your city. Much like a temple. I'm making this holy ground. I'm about to take it over. You have to choose one side. You have to choose one of the Elohim, either the Peru God, Jesus, the Elohim, the divine CEO of the council, or the lesser one that you're currently serving. The consequences are, when he returns in, in Revelation 19, when he returns, then he's not for peace. And Jesus was taking land by choice, not by force. You see, he came on Palm Sunday, Zechariah 9.9, came on a donkey. David's sons rode 70 donkeys. A donkey is a sign of peace. It means I come in peace. I'm not looking for war. He came the first time for peace. But he will return in force on a white horse. That is the sign of a conquering general. They're halfway through Revelation 19. And he's saying, when I return, when you have rejected me, even, even as far back as in what we're talking about right here in Luke, when they rejected Jesus, they chose the dirt of the God, the Elohim they were serving. And it would testify against them on Judgment Day. They could have turned that, that dirt into the land of Jesus, but they didn't. Who do they say that I am? Remember that? He goes to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is the home of a god named Pan. That's where we get the word panic. His people would run around crazily in what would become to known as a panic, cutting themselves into all sorts of crazy stuff. Well, Pan, if you see there, he's got the horns. That's where we really get the images of Satan or 
devil having horns. Pan was the god of the underworld. And Caesarea Philippi at the time is believed to be one of the few places where you could access the underworld. So he goes to what is the gates of Sheol, or hell, and he says, who do they say that I am? And in Matthew 16, verses 15 and 16, this is that famous question. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now the word for living he used, its meaning is to offer life or give life. So what he's saying is you are the son of the life-giving or life-offering God, which is no question, Yah. And actually, it's Jesus, the one standing before him, is the part of the Godhead that did the creation. But he went there, and he's declared that. And it's very interesting because he left the land of God. He was not within the area that you would you would have attributed to Yah. So that, what do we get next? Well, he takes his special three, and he goes up on the mountain, just right above Caesarea Philippi. And we have the transfiguration. And the transfiguration is where Jesus transformed from his earthly body. Remember, he is 100% man in the flesh, 100% God in the spirit. And in this moment, he is glorified. And so he, he takes on all God. And after this happens, he tells them, don't tell anyone. The question is, what's this all about? Like, you go up onto this mountain, you show that you are truly who you say you are. And both in Caesarea Philippi and on the Mount of Transfiguration, you tell your people, don't tell anyone that this happened, or who I truly am until, until after the resurrection. And they can't get it, because they still don't even understand that he's going to die. They can't figure it out. It's after Caesarea Philippi that we write there where we get Peter saying, you can't die. Don't say that. And Jesus scolds him, get behind me, Satan. The transfiguration takes place on a mountain that I know First Enoch is not inspired. I'm not saying it is. But it is a good reference, and, and all, a bunch of our disciples read it, reference it. So first Enoch, I believe it's chapter 6, says that when the divine beings or heavenly beings that had fallen came down, that's where they came down to take possession. And so Jesus goes to that very place, and he transforms. But without a dual realm theology, without looking at both sides, we, we don't understand why he does it. It doesn't make sense. Is it for us later on? Because it can't be for them right then. He tells them not to tell anybody. It's not for them then. You see, Jesus is picking a fight. Remember, the enemy is hidden. The enemy, or From the enemy is hidden the truth of his mission. Much like when Samuel went to anoint David king, when Saul didn't kill king of the Amalekites, and the Spirit of God left him. Samuel says, I'm going to get killed if Saul finds out I'm going to do this. And God says, then say you're going to go make a sacrifice. And do. Just don't tell him what your actual mission is. And that's what he does. And Jesus is doing the same thing here. He is going to the Mount of Transfiguration. And he is glorified. 
But his true intention is to pick the fight because they don't understand the true mission. They see him as, if you will, the kings on the field. And he's in human form. He's weak. And before he takes on this glorified form and he can just destroy us all and take back the nations, let's take him out. Because this is after... Remember in Matthew 4, the temptation of Jesus after his baptism, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and Satan tempts him. And what are the three temptations? Number one, you're hungry, turn stones into bread. That's a human temptation. That's to the flesh. That's to the weak side. Satan said, oh, he's weak now. I'm going to go after that. I've been able to destroy all these humans and get them to do whatever I want. I'm going to, he's human now. I'm going to do that to him. Doesn't work. So he takes him to the temple. Pride got the best of me. Anything's going to get him. It's got to be that. Glory. So he takes him onto the temple. Cast yourself down and the angels will save you. Divine temptation. Well, that doesn't work. He's out of, he's out of options. He goes for the magic bullet. Let's go win-win. Let's seven habits of highly effective people this. So he takes him to the high mountain. And he says, I will give you the world. You came to save the world and all these peoples because they were given to us. Number one, he inherited death at the fall. So death is his right-hand man, if you will. And then in the table of nations at Genesis 10, all of those were given to him. All of the land was given to, to them in 11. And he says, I will give it all back. You came here for this. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you everything. Like I am literally going to fulfill your mission right here, right now. All you have to do is give me the one thing I want. Worship me. He can't fathom. I can't see how he can fathom. Jesus won't do this. If you understand the backstory, this is the temptation. This is probably a greater temptation than we will ever face. This is the Hail Mary of Satan. And Jesus says no. And he has to be baffled. It literally says it confused him so much that he fled from him. He left and he waited for a more opportune time to tempt him. So he's out of temptations. And so he comes up with another plan. What's his other plan? Cross. So they kill Jesus thinking they had won. But Jesus is sinless. And this is what I think in the church, if you ask people, why does the cross matter? Well, Jesus died. Okay, what makes him special? Well, he's 100% God, 100% man. Okay, why does him dying on the cross, how does that pay for your sins? Just because he was sinless? What we're missing is that Jesus was sinless. James tells us, the wages of sin are death. If I work two weeks, I expect a paycheck. If I sin, whenever that pay period is up, I am going to inherit my check, which is death. But if I'm not working, I'm not going to get a check at the end of my two weeks. I have no pay period. I get no check. And so Jesus was beaten beyond all human recognition. 
beaten more than any person will ever be beaten. And I think the greatest sin of our Good Friday services are that we rush to the cross and we fail to focus any, really any attention on the stripes, the bruises, the beatings, beard pulling, the spitting, punching. All of it was absolutely horrendous. And he was, before he went to the cross, he was mutilated beyond any human recognition. And in almost every service, we see that relegated to two, two minutes. Max, 30 seconds and some. Two minutes almost max. And then we focus on the six hours where he's just hanging there for the whole 45 minutes that's left of the service. Jesus couldn't die because he didn't have pay stub to cash that check. It says that Jesus didn't commit suicide. Jesus made a sacrifice. He knowingly, intentionally, purposefully made a sacrifice. And that sacrifice was he yielded up his spirit. It is finished, and he yielded up his spirit. I mean, Jack Hibbs hit it right on the ne- right on the head. What power? What amazing power. Unfathomable to any of us. He yields up his spirit. It's at that moment, he takes death in a headlock. He, death doesn't come and get him. The Grim Reaper doesn't come and get him. He goes and gets the Grim Reaper, and he drags him down to Sheol. And once, much like Jacob struggled with God and prevailed, and his name becomes Israel, the new nation, God, death is now struggling with him. And at some point he lets him go, and he says, until another day. And that another day is at the great white throne judgment at which Hades itself and death itself are cast into the lake of fire. But until that day, he allows them to stay. But, in winning that victory, because of that, because he now has triumphed over death, he has triumphed over the curse, he has won back all of the nations. That is why he has saved us. It's deep, deeper, far deeper. I don't want this to be a three-hour thing. But I hope that makes more sense as to why the cross actually won your salvation. It wasn't just that God went to the cross and died. There's far more to it. I mean, we could get into the tabernacle and how it's a, a copy and he went to the true heaven. And I, I, won't, I won't go down that. Maybe another day. But the temple veil is torn. And the war between nations has a new twist. With Jesus' resurrection comes the bride of Christ. Because Jesus won all authority to all land by defeating death, Now people could choose him anywhere and pray to him. And the temple veil is torn because you no longer need a temple. Well, why don't we need a temple? We have a priest. We know he is the high priest. Hebrews tells us that. Let's look. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. That raised Christ, talking about the Holy Spirit, that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but in the world to come. That is the council. He is the CEO. He rules. No questions asked. He has won. He's sitting at the head table. 
He continues, God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. Remember, the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon them. That's why David, when he had his, his uh, soiree with Bathsheba and he's found out by Nathan and that he prays, God, do not take your spirit from me. God was within his right to take his spirit from him. They didn't have the promise we have. Only as the bride of Christ, only in the church age, this side of eternity, is the Holy Spirit indwelling with a promise to never leave us. In fact, after the rapture, and it has to be a pre-trib rapture, many things in the Bible, but also I think we're going to prove that through here. At least that's my stance. That the pre-trib rapture causes it to go back. The Holy Spirit then operates the way it did in the Old Testament, where it comes upon those tribulation saints. Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. I was chosen to explain, explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. Secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who? All the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This divine council, these Elohim. This was his eternal plan. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. The cross was the greatest sign of shame. In fact, when Paul said, mentions, even mentions the cross, the old, the church back there would have shook. No one wanted to be associated with the cross. They weren't walking around with necklaces of the cross or painting crosses on their stuff. It was a shameful thing, and he turned it around on them. Turned it around. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, he will destroy him. For, God, for the temple of God is holy. Which temple are you? Now, this is a church-age promise. Again, Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, Holy Spirit comes upon, does not indwell. We're the only ones it does. Let's jump back to Genesis 2, 7. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. Hold on. Here we go. We as Christians are holy ground. Everywhere we go is holy because we are holy, because Jesus made us holy. Do, do you get that? We are the holy ground. We are his temple. Everywhere we go, we have victory. Everywhere we go, we are that temple. He doesn't need a temple. He doesn't need a nation state. We are unbound by anything in that, in that arena. We are special. That is why. And everywhere we go cannot withstand us. You see, 
the verse that everybody talks about, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. It sounds like we are going to be holding on by our fingertips until he comes back. No matter how bad it gets, we are going to hold on. Even if it's just a little bit. And we, we're going to sit back and we're going to play it safe because we're not going to get killed. We can't get wiped out because Jesus promised the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. But I think that translation in the original language has a better English translation. And that is, the gates of hell cannot withstand my church. It's kind of, It's the same meaning. But it takes the onus off of us on defense and it puts it on us on offense. And it matches with occupy until I return. You don't occupy somewhere by getting pushed out and pushed around just by surviving. No, you occupy by taking ground. And again, our fight is not with any other person. Now, we are to defend ourselves. Israel is to defend itself. The nations are to defend itself. Ephesians 13, 1 through 5, even up to 7. It's, it's very clear on that. And any man who does not defend his house is worse than an unbeliever. Don't take it too long, too far with this. But the actual fight, no human is our enemy. They are our hostage that we are to rescue by way of the Holy Spirit through the power of Jesus Christ. And we are to be on the offense. We are not to be out of politics. We are not to be out of anything. We are to be in the culture, affecting change for the kingdom of Jesus, no matter where we are. And that takes us to the rapture. And that is, when we are removed, the war can actually get back to its original state. And these other Elohim can again focus on Israel instead of the church. The Holy Spirit won't leave the earth, but it will step aside, if you will, because we aren't here. We are that restraining power. And when we are gone, the earth will get what they want. The dust will be shocked, shook from our feet as we ascend into the clouds to be with our Savior. And judgment will be complete because everybody will have chosen what Elohim they will choose. We will be with ours, and they'll be with theirs. The nation of Israel and several people will come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior at that point. But the tribulation is not a good time, and very many people lose their lives because they choose. The book of Revelation is very clear. Despite all the things that are happening, they don't choose God. They, they are defiant. They are choosing their God. Some of them who don't acknowledge any God, they're still serving a God. That God is just them, and that's even lower than the other Elohims because they're just humans. Again, almost all of this is in the book Unseen Realm or Supernatural. Uh, here's a link to a YouTube documentary. I think it's about an hour long. There is another one you can find of him giving an entire seminar. It's about five hours long with an extra hour and a half of question and answer that he gives. And then the, the, the book. I, I would highly recommend it, but it is not light right reading, especially the Unseen Realm one. But please, 
Don't believe anything that I tell you. Do not trust anything that I tell you. Go look it up. Do not be so lazy. Do not be so Google-ish that you either, based on your beliefs of tradition or just, so far Jesus hasn't been wrong and the Bible hasn't been wrong and I'm really not scared that he's going to be. But I hope that you see your Bible in a new way. I hope that you've connected some dots that, that were never connected before. And I hope this wasn't a waste of your time and you made it this far, so at least you hung in there. And I, I really hope that that you look up Amir Sarfati. All of his stuff is great, but the the thing on the Last Supper is absolutely amazing. Jack Hibbs, if you're if you're new to the faith and you really want to know where to start. First off, read your Bible. I'd start in John. But he has a series called You Need to Know. And it is absolutely amazing. You watch that thing, and you will probably know more than most of the people who go and sit in church every week and just show up. It, it is absolutely amazing. It's where I send almost everybody that I talk to that comes to faith. I send them to his You Need to Know. It is a great foundational training. Let us close in prayer. Father, I thank you for those who have stayed with us all this way. I thank you for your teaching, for opening my eyes to this, being so faithful, so patient, so understanding, blessing us. Even in adversity, you bless us, and you've even paved the way most of the time. But our eyes are so focused on our selfishness that we don't even see it. And then we, we have the audacity to blame you. I can't blame you for anything. I, Lord, Lord, all I deserve is eternity in the lake of fire. And anything short of that is grace and mercy. And I pray that through your Son, Jesus Christ, the salvation of the world, if we choose it, that when he appears, I pray that we as the church would continue to reach those who are out there, the lost, that we would not sit back waiting for you in our bunkers we call churches. We've turned them into castles when they should be hospitals. Father, send us out. You, you are allowing things because whether we like it or not, when we are blessed, we turn from you. We, we, we look as if we don't need you. It's only through adversity, even through the Old Testament with Israel. Great example. It's only in adversity that we seek your face. And it's in adversity that some blame you. Father, I pray that your peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding, would come upon us. Guide us. Your healing hand, your guiding hand, your dwelling spirit. Lord, help us to occupy to glorify, and to reach the lost until you appear. It is in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the most precious name, most powerful name, most mighty name, the name of most glory, we pray. Amen.